Welcome to Diversify the Stand. Together we build a community to listen and learn from the stories and experiences of passionate musicians. I'm Carrie Blosser. And I'm Ashley Killam. In our second season, we talk with musicians, performers, educators, historians, and entrepreneurs to expand how we think of the music we perform and follow non-traditional career paths. Episode 5 features Dr. Kira Glesheen Artem. She's a conservatory coordinator and lecturer of oboe and classroom teaching at MTU Cork School of Music. Dr. Glesheen Artem is an educator, performer, traveler, has received multiple grants to do her schooling in the United States, and now tours with Camerata Ireland. It was so exciting to hear about her upbringing and how she's gotten into the role she is. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kira. Thank you so much for having me on. It's very exciting to be here. So we would love to hear a little bit about your background and how you ended up um, at the conservatory as the conservatory coordinator at the MTU Cork School of Music. Absolutely. So um, I'm going to go way back because um, my musical love and love of music generally goes way back to my childhood. Um, my parents are not musicians, but they love music and we're very supportive of myself and my brother, Rory, in our musical endeavors. And from a very young age, we were thrown into the world of music um, initially as Irish traditional musicians. So at the age of seven, I started playing the tin whistle and uh, my brother, Rory, when he was seven, started playing the baron, which is the Irish drum. And, and that was where our musician, ship and musical life started um, at that kind of very young uh, age. Um, so that's where we started. We both kind of transitioned away at some point, uh, at various different points in our lives to classical music. So I became a flute player, classical flute player um, initially um, and spent most of my youth um, playing classical flute um, in bands and orchestras and um, things like that. Then deciding that this is the this is the life that I want. I want to to be a musician. I want to be a, a music teacher. So I did my bachelor of music at the uh, which was then the CIT Cork School of Music, and uh, following that I studied in the Netherlands for a year, um, and I took lessons there and did a bit of playing. And it was at around that point I started playing with Camerata Ireland. Um, which is uh, an all-Ireland um, chamber orchestra. And I also did my graduate diploma in education at that point, or my, my equivalent of a teaching certification in Ireland um, for teaching high school music. But that wasn't enough for me because I loved studying. <laughs> so I went to, um, I decided that um, I wasn't totally content with my oboe playing I wanted to learn more I wanted to explore more um, and get different influences um, from outside Ireland from outside Europe so um, I I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder and I did my master's and loved it so much that I stayed and did my doctorate <laughs> before I then moved home to Ireland and uh, I started teaching at the Cork School of Music at that point and a year after um, I moved home and after a year teaching in the school um, I was very very lucky to be offered the conservatoire coordinator role and I've been there since uh, in that role since 2017. So that's kind of your whistle stop tour 
of my life <laughs> so far and I suppose you know how how my life has has brought me to this point and Kira tell me again you switched from from flute you were you were in was it high school that you switched to oboe or was it when you were in college yes so I was a flute player until I was 19 so um I started playing the oboe when I was 19 which is obviously for you know classical musicians quite late it's kind of a strange story that one um so my mom when we were when I I was in my last year of high school um and we do big state exams that year um kind of like SATs I'm guessing something kind of equivalent to that and um my mom very badly broke her leg very badly she couldn't walk she couldn't move she couldn't go anywhere or do anything and you know the dutiful daughter as I was then I was kind of doing everything I could to help around the house and everything and I kind of thought god mom always loved the oboe I'll take up the oboe not realizing I'd actually be torturing her by bringing you know, beginner oboe into the house. <laughs> but um, so I started playing the oboe uh, when I was 19 and it just clicked. And so I actually started the Bachelor of Music program on flute in the Cork School of Music the following year, but transition, but I did all my exams on both instruments and transitioned then to playing oboe um, sort of full time when I was when I was 21. So anything after that is all oboe related. <laughs> I feel like your mom was pretty happy probably to hear anything music related that you were playing for her, even if it was beginner oboe. <laughs> I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. But anyway, she's happy now because it all worked out. <laughs> Well, something that you had mentioned to us when we chatted the first time um, was that you were a Fulbright Scholar. So we were wondering what your experience was um, being a Fulbright Scholar and how did you use that scholarship? Absolutely. I was very, very lucky to um, get a Fulbright Scholarship and to go to do my master's at CU Boulder. So I suppose a bit of background to that is obviously um, the funding structure that third level tuition college level tuition is built on is very different in Ireland versus in the States. It's very expensive in the States to go to, to school, as, as I'm sure everybody is aware. In Ireland, um, comparatively, just so, just so you're aware, for one year of study, it's 3,000 euro, which is probably about four and a half thousand dollars. That's for one year of study, whereas it's a lot more expensive at CU Boulder. I know it's different from, from state to state and everything, but you know, it definitely would have been out of my price range <laughs> to, to study there and pay for it myself. So, you know, Fulbright was one kind of area of funding that obviously was of interest, but it wasn't just that for me. It was also the fact that I really loved their whole philosophy of the idea of exchange of ideas and um, that both me as a visiting person and Americans traveling abroad on Fulbright scholarships to Germany or to, to wherever they're going, both have value. I have value coming to the US to share what I, what I, you know, my own experiences. And also I will benefit from uh, my own experiences in the United States as well. So that really appealed to me, um, that kind of idea of exchange and partnership. So that, that was a, a kind of significant part for me before I even applied that, that drew me in and being part of something bigger 
as well and a bigger community and a community of international people um, from around the world. That was so exciting because I remember when uh, I first arrived in the US, all of the Fulbright students that were starting in, I think it was Nebraska, Colorado and New Mexico were all sent to Nebraska for kind of a, a week long get together. And there was people from all over the world. It was amazing. It was the absolute best week because you got to meet people from different cultures, different backgrounds, you know, people from places that, you know, um, had serious um, issues, be it war or poverty, you know, and then obviously people, for, people like me who come from very privileged backgrounds comparatively, you know, it was a really, really eye-opening experience for me. And it was, it showed me how lucky I was to have the opportunity, not just to be where I was, but also to meet such fantastic, vibrant people um, who all have such had and are now having such exciting careers, you know, and to be in touch, be able to be in touch with them and, and everything now. And they weren't musicians, all of them, you know, they could be poets, they could be engineers, they could be, you know, um, biomedical chemists, you know, there was such diversity there on every level. It was just fantastic. And that's something that I've always loved is meeting people from different places and hearing their story and hearing about them, you know, their lives and traveling around the world to see people you know, how people live in different places. And, you know, particularly as a musician, I think as well, you know, learning about music from different places and stuff like that. And I think the, the idea of the Fulbright program lined up for me so well on so many levels before I left, after I arrived. And then, you know, after that as well, you know, as a support system, it was it was fantastic for me to have that. And I and I couldn't have done it without them. But um, I suppose from from my own. So I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder because I wanted to explore um, different kind of read making styles. And I wanted to bring more flexibility into my playing. Um, so that was another thing that was that was what what we call my project, so to speak. You know, that was my my purpose, my my grand purpose. Let's say um, was to improve my playing, but to you know um, meet people who are playing in different styles and and using different methodologies and trying to see if they work for me and if they if I can incorporate them into my own playing and improve my own playing. So that's that's one of the reasons I that that I decided to go. Um, and that's why the Fulbright worked really well for me because it did work um, because I did change my read style and I did incorporate things from from that. So it was, you know, it it was very worthwhile. I mean, I was there for two years during my master's and that's that was the duration of my my Fulbright. And it was huge. I mean, it it really was it was quite life-changing for me because prior to that, I kind of had gone through a stage where I wasn't sure if I had what it took to be a performer, you know, and I think a lot of musicians go through that, that sort of self-doubt, um, you know, and, and we all have phases of it, but I definitely had the year prior to moving to Colorado, I had kind of decided I was going to be a high school teacher because I couldn't make it as a player. You know, I had sort of gone gone dark on myself and my own ability. And I suppose it it definitely the the chance to be in the US and and you know have a full right was life-changing because it showed me that actually, yes, you can do this. 
you know, and from being from such a small country, uh, like Ireland is tiny. We have such a tiny population, you know, I mean, and to be able to go to a place where there's such knowledge and there's, you know, such, you know, I, I suppose it was such a an open community. I was very lucky with that. Like Colorado is a really lovely place. Um, and, it, you know, everybody was everybody was so kind and so open. Um, and I felt at home immediately. It was kind of the perfect place for me to to explore uh, my playing a little bit. I do think Colorado and especially Boulder is just like this very different place than anywhere else that I've been across the U.S. and across the world. Like the like people there and like the pace there is just such a different different level. It really is. It honestly is like Chris calls it. Is it 40 square miles surrounded by reality is what he calls it, you know? And it kind of is, you know, and I think that's, you know, like Ireland, I suppose when when Chris moved, my husband is American. So when when we moved home and when Chris moved to Ireland for the first time, you know, we have this reputation as being very friendly and open. And we are, we are very friendly and we are very open and we'll chat away to people. And, you know, we we are comfortable chatting with with people and tourists and and everything generally it's true but what i would say is we can also be quite clicky in that often people don't move far from home and their family is nearby and they've had friends that they've had since they were in school and that kind of very close-knit community spirit is still very much alive in ireland but what that means for outsiders as i'll call them is or blow-ins as they're often you know uh known is that it, it sometimes can be more difficult for them to 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 settle in just because we have such a tightly knit community whereas boulder i think everybody was a blow-in almost you know or at least it feels that way and it just seems like it was the type of place that no matter where you're from or what background you have there's a place for you and there's a community for you there you know it was definitely somewhere I felt at home straight away. So we'd love to hear about your experience and your background with traditional Irish music and kind of how that was different from your time with music in the U.S. And then also if you talk a little bit about kind of music education as a whole in Ireland and kind of what that looks like. And you mentioned before different tests and how the education system works. There's a lot different in the state. So I'd love to hear more. Yeah, absolutely. So um a lot of traditional Irish music is based around an organization called Coltus Ceoltori Erin, which in English, uh, the English translation is um, Society of um, Musicians in Ireland. Um, so Coltus Ceoltori Erin is a really important organization in Ireland, not just for music, but also for traditional dance. Um, for also the language, like the Irish language as well. Um, it's sort of a champion in Ireland and also outside Ireland around the world um, for, uh, I suppose, for want of a better word, Irish culture, be it music, dance, you know, um, etc. Um, and most, most kids, when, if their parent want, wants them to start uh, a traditional Irish instrument, like the tin whistle or the traditional flute or the illan pipes or the bowron, which is the Irish drum, um, any of those types of, or the fiddle, any of those instruments, they will send them to um, Coltus. And there's kind of a network of teachers and centres around Ireland. Um, and I would say 
you know that that's the the home um of I traditional Irish music education in Ireland really it's not really in its home isn't really the schools like you you, you know your elementary your uh, we call them primary schools and secondary schools. They do. I'll I'll talk a, lot, a little bit about that in a second. But you know, from an instrumental pedagogy and education point of view, if you want to get lessons in a traditional Irish instrument, you're generally going to go to Coltus unless you know somebody personally, you know, who who teaches private lessons or something like that. Um, the beauty of Coltus as well is that they have obviously not at the moment unfortunately but they have weekly sessions so you know young young musicians who are learning um you know maybe after a year they can sit into the session and they might know some of the tunes they will have been learning some of the tunes and they can play along in this session and that's kind of for all ages so you know um you know for somebody like me if i decided i wanted to take back up the tin whistle and and, and go back you know i i could join um, it's a very inclusive, you know, type of organization. The Irish traditional um, music, as as um, a mu as a music, for want of a better word, um, is an aural tradition. So generally, it's learned by ear. Nowadays, sometimes that you know there is definitely a little bit of uh, notation sometimes, um, or even not not necessarily um, traditional notation that we would as classical musicians be familiar with. But um, you know um, it could be um, stick notation for rhythm and letter names, for example. Sometimes there's none at all. It, it kind of depends on the teacher that you have. I think um, is is my understanding. But mostly it's important that it is an oral tradition that when you go to the session. Generally, at least, I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody with, you know, music or anything. It's all it's all by ear. So then, so that's co that's Coltus. So that's kind of a, an important um, organization to be aware of um, with regard to Irish traditional music. The school system in Ireland um, is a little bit different in that um, we have primary school, which is um, kindergarten. I imagine how old is kind of how old is kindergarten? Four or five? I think it's like five, five to six. Okay, so primary school um, is generally around age four to five to about 12. And then kids go to secondary school um, from, you know, age 12 to 18 or 19, depending on what month they're born, for example. And in primary school, there is a specific music curriculum. And there's three main strands to that. There's composing, listening, and performing. So those are the three main strands. And there is there is scope for traditional Irish music within that, but it is all kind of up to the classroom teacher. They can do a mix of styles. They can do, you know, stick with one particular style. And I suppose it depends a little bit on their comfort zone. So in primary school, you have the same teacher for all subjects. So they teach English, math, music, geography, science, Irish, they teach everything, you know. Um, now, remember, it's only up to age 12. So, you know, it's it's limited scope, but it's still a lot to, to cover. So if you consider, you know, teachers who, who is teaching all of those things, they may be really fantastic at sport, for example, but they may have very little or limited experience in music. So it has to, the curriculum has to be somewhat kind of accessible for, for them. So unfortunately, that has meant that traditional Irish music, just to go back your, to your original question, isn't as widespread in primary schools. Now, um, on saying that, you know, a lot of teachers who are comfortable doing so will teach group tin whistle lessons, for example. Um, but it is very basic. And I would say, 
you know, they're there's a limit to what they can manage in, in a class, unfortunately. You know, it, like in many primary schools here, there's up to 30 kids in a class. So if you can imagine 30 tin whistle players, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the tin whistle, but I can compare it to the recorder, but worse on it if you have 30 of them together. So, you know, there's, there's limited scope uh, in a way in primary schools, uh, unfortunately, for, for uh, traditional Irish music. Um, in secondary school then, so when kids get a little bit older and they move into secondary school, they they can choose to take music as a subject in in six years, in those six years. <clears throat> There's, in, in within that, there are different, again, different kind of streams that they have to, to cover. They would be um, Western art music. So there would be kind of listening and learning, you know, set works, for example, a Bach cantata, um, you know, um, a tone poem and some, some modern Irish, compositions or something like that and they're learning to analyze they're learning to to listen you know oral perception um things like that so that will be kind of the first strand then there's composition so they're learning basic harmony the earliest stages of kind of contrapuntal stuff they're also learning kind of how to write simple melodies you know things like that and then um the third strand is performing, so they have to perform. And then the final strand is Irish traditional music. Um, so Irish traditional music, then they're learning, the, they're not really getting the chance to learn how to perform it, they're learning about it. Unless they themselves are a traditional Irish musician and they're probably going for lessons in cultists, they're not probably you know, doing a huge amount of um, Irish traditional performance, unless again, their teacher, their class teacher is a specialist in that area. And then then they may they may be doing a good bit of um, playing, you know, um, of traditional Irish music. But generally they're learning about it. So they're learning about the history of it. They're learning about the different instruments. They're learning about um, uh, our traditional Irish um, style of singing, which is called Shan Nos, which in English means um, old style, um, which is kind of... Um, Kind of a nasal type of singing that takes its lead from the words or the text of the song um, rather than so the text is more important than the words it's heavily ornamented so they learn about that yeah so that's about it I remember you talking about how there are like some kind of exams like oh you yeah, have yeah. To, you have to like pass those to like keep studying music I can't I know you explained this to me once and I just don't remember well aside from kind of school exams if you're learning to play an instrument be a piano or oboe or whatever instrument or any traditional Irish um, instruments as well and um, we have systems of exams for those instruments um so for for us in the Cork School of Music for example we have, obviously, we have our undergraduate courses and our master's courses, but we also have 2,000 what we call conservatoire students. Um, and they are primary school and secondary school students. So kids from the age of four um, to the age of 18 who come in for instrumental and singing lessons in the school. And they have to do an exam each year. Um, and the result of that exam sort of dictates whether they whether they can stay or not. We call them grade exams. So I know that's probably very confusing because, you know, in in the US, 
you know, you'd be in first grade, second grade, things like that. And we do call them grade one, grade two, but they don't necessarily line up with age. It's kind of a standard of achievement, so to speak. So um, generally after one year of playing an instrument, you should be able to do grade one, maybe two years, you know, you should be able to do um, grade one. By the time, if a, if a kid has been learning an instrument right the way from, you know, maybe age nine or 10, they should be finished you know, um, all of their exams. So there's eight exams in, in that kind of um, system. They should be finished all of their exams before they finish secondary school. Um, so then if they want to go on to college, you know, they've got a really firm foundation of playing. And also with um, music theory and musicianship, um, we use kind of a, um, in Ireland, we, in, both primary school and also in the Cork School of Music. In primary schools, they use the Kodai method um, of musicianship teaching. So again, you know, sound before symbol, um, all of those types of things um, for for teaching music to, to young kids. They've they've got a very firm and secure skill set in music by the time they finish secondary school, but. You know, it's that's that's quite limited to to the Cork School of Music and to other kind of schools of music. Um, they don't necessarily do that in mainstream state schools, for example. Yeah, I remember you talking about that, and that's what you did when you first moved back, right? You were like helping a lot of students prep for those. Yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> when I first moved home, um, before I got the job I have now, um, I had a lot of younger students. I still have some younger students. Um, sort of beginning age students so I was I was working on their on their grade exams with them and uh, you know again beginner oboe very cute yeah so very loud (laughs) very loud yeah very loud but yeah so I still have a few younger students but a lot I a lot of my job now is um, you know administrating and managing courses and recruitment and and all of that side of things so with all of the admin work that you're doing now, you are co-designing a DMA program at your school. We'd love to hear about that process. And if any listeners are interested, what they could expect if they were to apply for a DMA program at the Cork School of Music. Absolutely. Just to give a bit of background to this, we've just transitioned to MTU, Cork School of Music. Prior to um, January 2021, we were CIT, MTU, uh, CIT. IT Cork School of Music and um, what it means is we now have a higher university status so we were a different type of organization until this year so we're a higher type of university now and what that means is we can now award our own doctoral programs so prior to this we would have had to have any doctoral programs um, certified by an external like a, a larger university for example but now, because we've become so big, we now are able to to certify our own doctoral programs. So we obviously want to um, now create a doctoral program. So we are almost finished. I think I'm not involved in this now, but I think we're almost finished with a PhD. I think that should be up and running by September. And we're also designing a um, DMOS program. So it's not DMA, it's DMOS, same thing. We just call it something slightly different. And I suppose the goal with this program is that it's going to be fully inclusive. We want to have as many styles and genres as possible. It's the type of program that we'll 
we hope will work for a classical musician for somebody working in another genre of music completely such as like irish traditional music or you know even you know ethnomusicologists who are working in a more performance realm or somebody looking to cross-pollinate as well for example we have um we have four degree programs undergraduate programs in the school at the moment so we have the bachelor of music which is for classical musicians, um, for jazz musicians and for Irish traditional musicians. We have a BA in theatre and drama studies. We have a BA in popular music, which is kind of a more commercial music course. So electric guitar, electric bass, drums, keys, that, that side of things. And then we have a BA in musical theatre. So for somebody, we also want this DMOS course to appeal to somebody who's looking to cross-pollinate between those worlds. So for example, if you're a musician who's also interested in dance or how music can influence dance or vice versa, or theater or something like that, that we want this to be um, a program that's accessible to a lot of different types of people. Um, and of course, research goes hand in hand with performance in, in all doctoral programs. Um, so we hope, that students will finish then as well-rounded, experienced, confident people. But for me, I, I keep coming back to the fact that this has to be accessible. This has to be open. This has to be a course that's suitable for everybody. It has to be something that, you know, like my brother as, you know, somebody who is involved in drumming traditions from around the world, for example, he's a percussionist and he's really interested in, you know, um, yeah, drumming traditions from literally around the world that this is something because just because he isn't involved as much now in classical traditional classical percussion that this is a course that someone like him or someone in a similar situation um to him could could apply for just as much as somebody who's a classical flute player or a, a cello player or something like that and this is the first this is the first time like your school will be able to like officially award doctor titles right Yes. Yeah. This yeah. will be the first time. Yeah. So it's very exciting. Yeah. Our last question that we ask everyone is what's on your stand this week and how are you diversifying your stand? So I have a concert coming up in June. Um, there's not a huge amount of concerts here, unfortunately, at the moment. Last week, um, I played a concert. And now my next one isn't until June. But excitingly, the one in June is, it's a real mix of different things. But one of the favorite, my favorite things that we're doing in this concert is a piece for oboe and double bass by Andrea Clearfield. And it's called Three Songs. Um, it's a really interesting piece um, because each movement is based on a different Pablo Neruda poem. Um, it's really it's a really cool piece and it's really, I'm not going to lie, really hard because it's oboe and double bass. So we're talking about the extremes of register here. But it's nice to be able to play something different. And I've contacted Andrea Clearfield to get, you know, some more background from her. And, you know, it's nice to kind of feel like it's a collaborative process in a way that she's you know uh, involved in kind of helping us put that together um but I do find that I'm trying to incorporate and trying to include more and more female performers into my repertoire my own repertoire but also into my students so I have my students playing a lot of Mary Chandler studies and um, things like that because you know as it happens a lot of my particularly my younger students are female and I want them to see that it's not just male composers that they have to play and that there are some amazing fantastic 
um, composers out there. As an oboe player, our repertoire is quite limited because it's generally there's so few of us as, as a group of instruments that, you know, composers don't, nowadays composers don't write for us quite as often as they would for violin or piano, things like that, things that more people play. And it makes sense because, you know, they make more money because they'll sell more scores, you know. But I, I always try to search out things so that my students are seeing that there's diversity in what they're playing and they're not just playing the same thing. And in fairness, you know, I try to make our syllabuses as diverse as we can for that reason, because when you go out into the world, you it's diverse now, you know, um, and, and that's the beauty of music. And I think from my own experiences as a player is that everywhere I've been and everything that I've done in my life has influenced my playing. And I was I mentioned earlier about Coltus, even though I'm not a member now and I'm not involved in any way now, had a huge influence on me. You know, I've visited, I've toured around the world and visited so many different places. And I always go out of my way to search out, you know, um, interesting people and meet people when I'm in different places. And all of that influences what I do. I always find that the people that I meet color the next performance that I have in a place. And I think it's important for me when I'm putting a syllabus together for my students to demonstrate that diversity so that when they go out into the world, they'll search for it too and they'll explore um, for themselves. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks, Ashley. Links to Kira's website plus the groups and projects she's a part of are listed in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to Diversify the Stand. I'm Ashley. And I'm Carrie. If you'd like to support us and our projects, find us on social media and visit our website. We now have a store where you can pick up some Diversify the Stand gear. And as always, a huge thank you to Trevor Weston and Whitney George for allowing us to use their compositions in our podcast. The musical introduction is Trevor's trumpet duet, Fanfare for Changes, and the ending music is Whitney's incantations for trumpet and piano. Both composers' websites are listed in the podcast description. Until next week, what's on your stand?